And we're live. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Double Take Podcast. I'm Mark Schoenster. Alongside me... James Schoenster. And we are recording in, uh, once again, the top-notch studio in James's house, the guest room, which I actually slept in last week when I stayed here to record the podcast last week. And we'll be doing so here tonight as well. So this is both the recording booth and Mark's bedroom for the day. So just here doing our thing. But... In case you have not listened before, this is the Double Take Podcast, where we look back at sports history and acknowledge either a weird bit of history or maybe an underappreciated bit of history. And for today, we're going to talk about our favorite league again. We're going to go back to the NFL and talk about the NFL. You know, I I guess to start off, I was looking into an NBA story, but what Mm -hmm. I found was when I was digging into it, that the things that make that story cool, it was hard for me to really wrap my head around because I just don't have that base knowledge. So like when these player names are getting spitted out when I'm reading something, it's like, uh, that's just a name to me. Stick to what we know. Right, right. And it'd be a lot harder to talk about something when the only base of knowledge that we have is what I'm reading. So, so we're gonna, we're gonna go back to the NFL and we're gonna talk about the 80s. All right. That is a fun time in football. I mean, for the most part, the NFL has been pretty pretty fun throughout its history, but the 80s were interesting because sometimes things went a little off script. And today, we're going to talk about the player strike in 1987. Ooh. So, in 1987, or I guess we'll, we'll get this started, the players, just for a brief overview before we really dive into it, in 1987, players were wanting to get more benefits, wanting to get more out of the NFL than what they were being uh, allotted, whether it be wages and benefits and stuff like that. And so they decided that they were going to not play until the owners granted them what they were asking for. But anyway, we'll dive into more of this right here and what the more pinpointed topic is, because honestly, we could talk about this player strike on several different episodes to talk about completely different things because there's a lot of interesting stuff that goes into this. But anyway, on September 22nd, 1987, the NFL Players Association began their strike against the NFL. Players said they would not play in week three, and from then on until they were given better pension benefits, severance, free agency, and a removal of artificial turf. Okay, so the helmets improvements came later. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, you can see it with all these players nowadays that played in the 80s suffering from late-term injuries or injuries that just didn't get better or, you know, unfortunately, CTE. But, but yeah. I can see why pension would have been more the forethought, though. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But it would be wrong of me to not mention that this tension was not new for the 80s in the NFL. In 1982, the players did the same thing, causing seven weeks of NFL football to not happen. That horror. Yeah, I know. A terrifying. A terrifying prospect. That only ended when the NFL owners gave a pittance of an upgrade to some of the monetary compensations players received. That strike caught the NFL off guard. But since the arguing with the Players Association had resumed the summer prior to the 87 season, they began preparing for if there was a repeat of 1982. Seen this story before. Right, right. So... When it happened, they began their counterattack on the NFLPA's strike. So, week two had just ended. In order to conduct what needed to be done, the NFL canceled week three. So, like in 82, the players were successful in causing football to not happen. Unfortunately for the NFLPA, that only lasted a week. Week four was still on the schedule, which is weird given the fact that every team just doesn't have their players. So, how did they field players? They hired new ones, of course. Okay. Hired new players. So, obviously, your best recruits were guys who didn't make it big after college. And then those who were... Go ahead. Can you kind of touch base on a few of the players that were, quote-unquote, replaceable this season? <laughs> oh, well, we'll talk about... Um, we'll talk about some of the players that first off come in to replace. Right. And and then a couple of the players that were getting replaced here. Right. Per, per se. So... But these new guys that are coming in, obviously the best ones you're going to find are those who played in college but didn't quite make it to the NFL. And others had been playing in a recently folded United States Football League, the USFL. So kind of a spring competitor, kind of like an XFL now, 
I mean, there's one or two of those that pop up every five years, and, you know, the, the players keep up their chops. Right, right. And those are going to be your best guys for the most part. Right. But that wasn't the majority of guys who got hired. Most of them were average Joe Smoes plucked from random walks of life. You had Bob from the bakery, Reynolds, the young officer, Antonio, the guy who dusted everyone in a pickup game. James, would you like to play for the Minnesota Vikings? Sure. Uh, uh, do they pay well? Oh, they pay. They, I mean, they pay. I don't... Whether that your definition of well uh, remains to be seen. I'll, I, have a, I have a little bit of a statistic later on that gives you an idea of what kind of money they make. Uh. It's nowhere near the amount that the professionals are making. But anyway, it's a dream job. You know, it's a chance to live out an old dream that you gave up years ago. Maybe just a fleeting thing you pretended as a kid. The amount of times Mark Schoenster led game-winning drives as the quarterback of the Colts growing up was pretty historic. Like, I mean, he was a pretty big deal in my head. At least five times a week, he won a Super Bowl. Yeah, yeah, it was, you know, just, he, he benched Peyton Manning. Like, you know, he got him on the bench, and he was taking charge of the Colts. But now you get the chance to do it in real life, with an asterisk, albeit. But still, you get to play for your team, you know? Yeah. But... Unfortunately, these replacements were not received well in many places. I mean, come on, it obviously wasn't good football, and it seemed like a waste of time and money to root for your team if they weren't real professionals. Well, I don't know. I, calling it not good football sounds like a dig on college sports. A lot of these <laughs> players were college students that just didn't make it to the NFL. I think the bigger thing is less the fact that the players weren't talented enough, but they didn't have a lot of time to gel and learn a playbook. Like, they literally were getting picked yeah. up a week before they were going to play football, so it was not good-looking stuff. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. <laughs> but the universal nickname of these replacements were scabs. But some cities came up with unique names, like the Seattle Sea Scabs or the Phony Niners. So... <laughs> Some people were getting real creative with what they were calling their team. But not every city was against it, though. One example, the Cowboys, loved their replacements and called them the Rhinestone Cowboys in honor of their real blue-collar grit. So this wasn't a nationwide hate of replacement players. Now, many fans may have not liked the Scabs, but they didn't hate them, per se. There was a group of people who did hate the Scabs. Uh-oh. The Striking Pros. Oh, right. And many made efforts <laughs> to discourage replacements from playing anymore. The New York Jets players, they threw eggs at their replacements. The Packers egged a scab's car. Some of the Houston Oilers players broke a bus window that transported some of the replacements. I'm surprised they went violent. I, I mean, couldn't they have just done something like, uh, hey, you know... I know the Vikings are a really big deal to you, and playing wide receiver would be great, but wouldn't it be cooler to go get a beer with Randy Moss? <laughs> there you go. Yeah, I don't know. I, I do know that, uh, and I didn't write this down, but some of the, the representatives for teams, like for the, the Eagles, per se, the Eagles had all of their replacements in one hotel, but they, keep ha they had to keep moving them hotel to hotel because the player's representative for the Eagles kept going to the hotel trying to talk them out of playing. So the exactly. Eagles just kept shifting the place to place. So there's probably some schmoozing happening city by city. Yeah, but, I gotta yeah. believe it. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's another pretty interesting thing is, um, and this is also a little going off track, but it was, again, there's so much information that I could peel from this, but Chris Collinsworth was playing at the time, and okay. he was striking, and he was there when the Bengals had a, had a game. Like, he was just outside the stadium, and some father walked over to him and said, Hey, Chris, look, I'd love to see you out there on the field today, but I bought these tickets for my son and I, and he's not going to know the difference. <laughs> <laughs> They're all wearing the colorful jerseys. Yeah, right? yeah. Tickets were probably cheap, too. Oh, yeah, seriously. Get your son out to your Bengals game, and he can say he's been the one. He won't know the difference. That's right. Hell, if he finds out later in history that that's what he went to go see, he can brag about the fact that he saw one of the scab games. That's probably a parent out there who's thinking, man, I could probably take my son to go see uh, Zoso, who's a Led Zeppelin tribute band. Yeah. And just sell the whole thing <laughs> as Led Zeppelin. <laughs> yeah, that's the real deal, man. 
Your your mom saved for months to buy you these tickets. Exactly. That's how much I love you. But yeah. Now go mow the lawn. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so the Steelers tried to avoid all problems and just practiced 60 miles from Pittsburgh in order to avoid any commotion. So that's pretty extreme. And then the crazy example I could come up with was two Kansas City Chiefs players stood in the back of a truck nearby the facilities holding, allegedly, unloaded rifles. Mm-hmm. So they got arrested, and they said that they apologized, but also said that their guns weren't loaded. But still, that's pretty extreme. Yeah, carrying an unloaded rifle and using that as your excuse, that sounds about the same as, uh, yeah, I hit the joint, but I didn't inhale. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I didn't get any of the any of the satisfaction from using it, you know? <laughs> so it's not wrong. It's not illegal. <laughs> no. But we could keep going down the rabbit hole of what the striking players did during this time. There was a lot of tension, a lot of drama. But that is a whole other episode's worth of content that we'll have to just wait for another day. All right. Instead, I want to spend this time talking about some stories about these replacements, who made roughly $4,000 per game after taxes. After taxes. Yeah. That's not too shabby. So that's not too shabby, yeah. But I mean, still, it's quite a bit less than what NFL players were even making back then. But still, I mean, you get... Were there medical benefits? I couldn't (laughs) tell you the specifics outside of that. That's about as much as I could dig up. But for the rest of this episode, I'm going to highlight two individual players during this time, and then we're going to talk about two games that occurred these three weeks of scab football before the real NFL football returned. So... The first guy is Mike Hoensey, former college quarterback at Minnesota. Hoensey did well for himself in college. He started for the Golden Gophers in 81 and 82. He set records while he was there and is now in the University of Minnesota Sports Hall of Fame. So pretty successful in college, right? Yeah. Yeah, He's probably a lot of fan favorites out there in, in Minnesota. They haven't exactly had too much success in the college realm. Someone was raving in a pub about how he's finally getting his chance. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, you're you're really close. You're really, really close because although he didn't get into the NFL, he instead played for the Washington Federals in the USFL. Uh-huh. But like we already mentioned, the USFL recently shut down for good, which meant Hoensey was out of a job. So, yes, he was at a bar, but he was bartending. He worked as a bartender after he lost that job. And he was doing his own thing when Mike Ditka and the Bears called him to give him a shot at playing for the Chicago Bears. All right. So maybe that was his fun story to guys who were like, I almost made it big. And then he could say, I did too. I almost made it big. I was quarterback for the Golden Gophers and I just didn't quite make it to the NFL. Well, no, I'm saying a Golden Gophers fan was probably saying when they heard the news... He got oh, picked up I by got the Bears. You. Okay. Finally! Yeah. My boy! He can finally get the <laughs> chance. That's going to be like in three years when a team signs Will Greer somewhere else and we're going to think, and West Virginia fans are going to think he's going to make it big. But uh, that, that is a funny point, though, about him being a bartender. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, I mean, it's, he was just, at that point, he could have just been anybody. He just happened to have played football in college, which is a cool story you can share, but now... Now he's going to go try out for the Bears. So he left his bartending job to go play for the Bears. He got to Chicago and competed for the starting spot, and he got it. And he even beat out a much more well-known name nowadays, the current New Orleans Saints head coach, Sean Payton. So, wasn't tall enough. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, man. Can you imagine, though, if that was the reason? Oh, it's got to be part of it, right? (laughs) If he lost the job, maybe he went home and thought, I'll show them. I'll show them. (laughs) I'll I'll find the shortest quarterback I could make a Hall of Famer. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. That'd be kind of funny if that was a beefy health of this day, and now Drew Brees is doing well, and he's like, You see that, Mike Ditka? You see that? (laughs) You doubted me, but I'm not going to doubt this kid. Oh, man. But yeah, so this guy beat out Sean Payton for the starting spot at quarterback and played week four. And listen, he did really well. 
Like, he did so well that the Bears traded away one of their striking quarterbacks, Doug Flutie, to the Patriots and gave Hoensey the opportunity to have that spot once the strike was all over. Mm-hmm. So that's like the American dream at its finest, from rags to riches in the span of weeks, which makes it sad because Hoensey would go from rags to a chance at riches to a knee injury in the second week of scat play. Which, second week? Ugh. Yeah. So that resulted in him never playing NFL football again. He only had to make it like three. <laughs> yeah. He didn't have to make it very long. He got like a knee injury, didn't play the next week. And by that point, Mike Ditka wasn't like sold on him anymore. So uh. his patience ran thin, which isn't too surprising. If you're listening to this on any of our podcasting platforms, be sure to check out Anchor and SoundCloud for other great U92 podcasts. If you're listening on the air, this is U92 The Moose. Hear us live from anywhere in the world at U92TheMoose.com. So I don't really think that I did cut... I mean, he doesn't strike me as a guy who's too patient anyway. So, you know, it's just unfortunate for him that, you know... He never got that chance. But I would like to provide a high point to the end of this guy's story. Okay. Hoensey would later on in his life become a head coach in the AFL, which also no longer really exists, but has gone down that coaching path in his life. One cool story to share about him in 2007, while he was the head coach of the Chicago Rush, he got hit by a car while walking through a grocery parking lot. You said the high point. Yeah, well, that's coming up next. <laughs> he would still coach the team two days later from the press box with a sling on his arm, and they won the game. Couldn't get taken out by a car, but an arrow to the knee. <laughs> oh, man. Maybe he also has something to prove. <laughs> Very likely. <laughs> the, the 87 Bears... Uh, caused trauma for two different aspiring quarterbacks and now head coaches. Next time in scab history. Yeah, yeah. Both with the same phrase. You see that, Ditka? (laughs) Oh my goodness. Anyway, um, let's see here. I lost track. Here we are. So moving on from Hoensey, the other guy I wanted to point out was Phil Michech. Phil Michech. I'm not sure if that's how you pronounce his last name, but I kept digging trying to find anything that showed me how to pronounce his name, mm-hmm. and it's nowhere. So where's it spelled? It's M-I-C-E-C-H. So Misech or Michech or... Michech, it sounds close enough. Yeah, but I couldn't find it anywhere, so we're in real underground NFL history right here. <laughs> so this is some deep stuff. But anyway, Phil played collegiately at the University of Wisconsin-Platteville, but that was it. He was a defensive end while he was there, but then he went on to a much more sophisticated job. He worked in Milwaukee as a chemical engineer. Okay. So from football to chemical engineer, you know, that's quite the transition. But regardless, in 1987, things came around and he received an offer to play for James's own Minnesota Vikings. All right. He could play defensive end on a franchise with a great tradition of awesome D-linemen. Think about it. Daniil Hunter, Alan Page, Jared Allen, John Randall, Jim Marshall. The purple people eaters. Phil Michech. <laughs> awesome opportunity, right? <laughs> hey, if we got to play some engineer from Milwaukee, we'll have to do the trick. I mean, you know, it's... Can you imagine the kind of digging they had to do to find this guy to be like, hey, this guy played football once. Well, it seems like the... Northern Midwest area is their target. Well, I guess Wisconsin's not Midwest. What is what is? I would just consider it north, honestly. Just north, just Montana, north. Wisconsin, Minnesota. That's just that's the north. north. <laughs> that's like nearly Canada. Where do they breed Americans that are tough enough for <laughs> for scab football? The north. <laughs> Winter is coming. Um, And a $4,000 paycheck, too. (laughs) (laughs) But, yeah, so it's an awesome opportunity. So he took it. But he didn't quit his other job. He just took vacation. So he played week four, and then he played week five, but then realized he had run out of vacation days at his engineering job 
So he left the team to return to Milwaukee. Priorities. <laughs> Listen, man, I got a real job I gotta go do. They probably did have medical benefits. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. But, but yeah, so this guy just took two weeks vacation to go, you know, pretty much fill out a make-a-wish and hey, play that's NFL a gr- football. That's a great vacay. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Oh, man. But the story isn't over, though, because the Vikings in practice that week would lose some D-linemen to injury and needed a guy to play against the Bucks that weekend. So they called up Phil Michech and flew him from Milwaukee to Tampa Bay to play the Bucks without any practice at all that week. This sounds like that guy had to have known what he was getting away with. Like, <laughs> getting flown in, he must have been living it up. Just like, <laughs> I get to live both lives. Oh, this is great. Hey, honey, I need you to go uh, take our son to uh, his basketball game. Um, I'm sorry, but I have the Vikings personally flying me to Tampa Bay this weekend, so I can't really do that. I'm sorry. Sorry, Han. <laughs> My Sunday Sunday league. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Listen, I can't let the boys down. <laughs> oh my goodness. Oh man, but that's that's but that's his story. I mean, it's just another funny thing worth exploring. And again, there's like a billion of these, which is just right. great because it's just your everyman going out and deciding to play NFL football. Like that's that's so cool. Is that not the dream? I mean, it's got it's got to be a little sliver of the back of everyone's mind. Why, you know, if you're a big fan of the NFL, I mean, part of the appeal is just trying to put yourself in their shoes and understand how it feels. So that it's the dream, right? Right, right. And you know, definitely there are guys who got to experience, you know, the violence, the pressure, the the intensity of the sport, just all those things. And actually, we're going to talk about, and that is a great segue, into two games where certain players definitely experienced some interesting stuff. All right. So, we're going to talk about two games in particular that I found funny. First, we're going to talk about what has been called, quote-unquote, the worst game in NFL history. And then we're going to talk about probably the best game during this strike period. 2016 Dolphins say, hold my beer. Yeah. (laughs) You know, I I just feel like it's kind of unfair to call a game during this time the worst game in NFL history, especially when you've had games that are awful that were done by professionals. Was so it like, wasn't there like a two to zero or three to zero scoreline? Zero zeros like I yeah mean, yeah they've the been past around, is so littered like, with much much worse games. Yeah, <laughs> but say because this one at least is amusing in a way. But anyway, well we'll get into why it's been called that. It was, it was called that by one of the head coaches during, in that game mm-hmm. afterwards. But starting with that, the worst game, the Bills and Giants were both 0-2 going into the final week of replacement football. Bills head coach and Hall of Famer Marv Levy was still pretty new to the Bills organization at the time and was trying to make things work. Meanwhile, Hall of Famer and head coach of the New York Giants, Bill Parcells, couldn't have cared less about coaching scabs. Right. And he, was, he wasn't alone in that regard. So many coaches just... They were, it was both a, why, what, I'm not paid to coach people who don't know how to play football, but also some of them did it kind of as a, in solidarity with their players who were trying to strike for more money. So they just, they did the bare minimum to keep their job and, you know, took else for it, but still. But anyway, he, he couldn't have cared less, but although Parcells didn't care, his defensive coordinator did. Bill Belichick was very engrossed in creating a new defensive system for a bunch of untalented footballers who couldn't do what NFL players do. This is where he got his experience. This is where he found out. This is how he developed his New England Patriots offense, is he learned, how can I make players do the least amount of athletic ability as possible while still scoring points, except this time he was on the defensive end. How can I stop the other team as much as possible despite just players out playing the other ones but yeah i mean i imagine it's pretty interesting practice like some players mentioned that you know bill belichick really enjoyed it and thought that it was really cool because it was all about just outsmarting the other coach at that point so but going into week six the two teams would play each other and it was expected to be a nasty game with little scoring and both teams would walk away trying to forget it ever happened but then marv levy in a panic during the week found out some terrifying news 
One of the Giants' pro players was done striking and wanted to make his money. So he was going to, as the term is called, cross the picket fence and join the team of scabs and play the Bills. Ooh. Now, any NFL player would be a matchup nightmare for these poor replacement players, right? But this guy wasn't just any player. This guy, in my opinion, is the greatest ever to put on a football uniform. I'm talking about legendary Hall of Fame linebacker Lawrence Taylor. Wait. He's he's just the one guy that decided to cross the picket. Like, yes. <laughs> I feel like they were just too scared to stop him. <laughs> Kid, oh my goodness. No, but like... Oh, man. I, I read this whole article about how the Bill, like, different Bills players who were all just these guys who were like, yo, I'm playing for the Bills. We're going to go play the Giants. And then them just hearing the news that they now have to play against Lawrence Taylor. And then they're just thinking, wow, shoot. Uh, I don't know what to do about that. <laughs> yeah. I, th- I feel like uh, some concern for your safety would be involved. Um <laughs> Yeah, that's uh, that's that's interesting. He, I mean, that had to make every other player who was striking just seethe, though, right? <laughs> you know, again, like you said, I think they probably were just too scared of this guy because this guy already, for like, for NFL standards, was terrifying. Like everyone right. was scared of this guy. Even now, the pros, even the pros were scared of him. Like he would. Like, if I remember correctly, heard a story that, like, before plays, he would literally point at the guy who was assigned to him, and he'd just say, I'm coming after you. And they couldn't do anything about it. He'd just go through him. And now he's going to do that to people who haven't played football in years and have been practicing for two weeks and played two games. All right, so how long into the game did we get before LT was sacking the quarterback with... A guy on each arm. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I wish I could find some footage of the game because that would just be wild. Yeah, so part of the reason they were running these things still was to try and broadcast it, right? Yeah, yeah, they still wanted to make the broadcast revenue. And, you know, surprisingly, yes, there was a viewership drop, but it was only like a 16% drop from what I saw, which is not enough to stop the NFL from broadcasting. So... (laughs) We, we know it's fake. We don't care. <laughs> it's, I mean, when I was reading, I was like, huh, that's interesting. But also, they brought this point, and I would have, I agree with it, is a lot of people, I think, were probably just really curious to see what was going to happen. Because, yeah. like, can you imagine if that happened this season for any reason? You know, you just had these replacement players playing for every team, and it's just like, hey, my uh, neighbor is playing for the Giants now. Like, I wonder how he's going to do. Yeah, you know, when you put it in the context of happening today, I almost feel like, at least for a game or two, you'd see an uptick in viewership. Well, that was kind of like the first weekend of the XFL. They got some of their viewership was better than some of the regular season weeks in the NFL. Then I thought, well, that's just because it's something new. Right. And so people want to try it out. The, 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 The ratings dropped the next few weeks, but but... It is kind of along the same lines, though. Right, it was something right. new, something this different. This I gotta see. <laughs> but, yeah. You mentioned players' concern for their safety, which is well-founded when you're playing with Lawrence Taylor. But Taylor was tired of not making money. But he also saw his reigning champion Giants sitting on an 0-4 record on the year, and he wanted to salvage the season. Excuse me. So, when he returned for a half-week of practice, he said very few words to head coach Parcells, who said few back, but it's not like he really needed much coaching that week anyway probably not so despite the lack of needing practice or the the lack of yeah the lack of needing practice sorry uh taylor wreaked havoc on his team in practice it even used a spin move that broke a guy's wrist ouch so you're talking about safety concerns his own team needs to be worried about the half week of practice they're getting with i bet of the half of half of the words that parcells said to lt were, please don't get us sued. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my goodness. No, you're right though. You're right. So, oh man, that's... But, 
Also, I owe an apology to the 2016 Dolphins. I don't know why I picked that year, but apparently they won 10 games. Oh, oh, the Matt Moore Dolphins. Yeah, That's, I think I, I think you need to go a little further back. A little it was further like the back. O, yeah. I think it was an O seven or O eight that they went one in fifteen. Okay, but yeah. If you're listening to this on any of our podcasting platforms, be sure to check out Anchor and SoundCloud for other great U92 podcasts. If you're listening on the air, this is U92 The Moose. Hear us live from anywhere in the world at U92TheMoose.com. But yeah, that was a pretty horrid team, though, that the one that we were trying to find. But 16's a little bit too recent. That's right. Time flies when you're having fun. Yeah, certainly. But... The game began, this Bills-Giants affair, and it was awful. No team had scored going into the fourth quarter. Lawrence Taylor didn't learn any of the players' names on his team, but he did find the defensive captain and asked him what he needed to do each play since they were not playing the normal playbook. Dan DeRose, an economics teacher, was the captain. Point and click. There you go. So, <laughs> so but that was his name, but LT just called him Boss Man. Boss Man. So every play he'd go on, he, he, he'd ask him, all right, what am I doing this play, boss man? And he'd tell him. Sick him. Yeah. <laughs> You're attacking this gap. That's pretty much the, the gist. But the game went on. LT had been making almost every other tackle for New York and was destroying Bill's quarterback, Brian McClure, in the process. So watching this happen, boss man was still getting approached by Taylor before every snap. Eventually, he just told LT... And I quote, Lawrence, you're going to the Hall of Fame. You're going to Canton. I'm going back to Colorado and teaching economics. Do whatever the hell you want to do, and we'll just fill in. <laughs> I'm surprised it took him that long to get there. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I think from what I read, he said stuff along the lines of, if it's a run, you fill the C gap. If it's a pass, you just go into the right flat. But eventually he was just like, you know, this guy is just tearing everything up. So I'm just going to let him do whatever he wants, whatever he sees. And we'll just, we'll just cover for him, you know? Yeah. No, but gosh, I just want to watch a game where it's all these poor players and just a Lawrence Taylor running. I mean, it has to exist somewhere, right? Yeah. I mean, it was only in the 80s. Like, it's got to be saved somewhere. Yes. It's got to be. Even to if... our millions of fans out there, someone please find this video. We need some investigative journalism. <laughs> oh my goodness. Even if the NFL is trying to trash every single tape recording of these three weeks of football, it's out there. <laughs> someone, someone has already clued in, Goodell, that this podcast is happening. And, we're about to get, and, we're really about to get attacked. We're, just check the news next week and find a mysterious fire in some Hollywood <laughs> <laughs> department building. <laughs> Suddenly, Mark Schoenster and James Schoenster are no longer podcasting their famous Double Take podcast, and there is a department in, I don't know, New Jersey that's burned down for whatever reason and had lots of film rolls. Old in it. film rolls. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. But yeah, so Lawrence did his damage. One of the Bills linemen was a lifelong Giants fan who now had LT as his assigned man, which was great and awful at the same time, I'd imagine. Yeah, I think he enjoyed every bit of it. Yeah, I, I imagine at first you're, like, terrified, but then afterwards, you know, you can just say, hey, I played Lawrence Taylor at a game of football. Like, I'm talking about guys in pubs. This guy yeah, this was guy, a hero in one for the rest of his life. Yeah, he's he's got a story, and people aren't going to believe him. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. But lucky for him, he finished that game without being called for holding, but seven holding fouls on LT were called on the Bills, and four of them were by center Will Grant. When Coach Levy pulled Grant aside to tell him, dude, you've been called for four holds, what the hell, Grant merely responded. Here's another quote. Coach, that's good. I'm holding him every down. <laughs> well, I mean, it, it's, it, it seems like a viable strategy, right? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's just... The, the refs aren't going to call it every single time. And if you don't, you get sacked for like 
At least two-thirds of the 15 anyway. Yeah. Oh, wait, it's only 10 for holding. Yeah, and I mean, that's... The, and <laughs> I, I would even go further and say that your your probability for getting called for a holding foul is probably lower than Lawrence Taylor strip-sacking the quarterback. Exactly. <laughs> so, <laughs> even in the scenario where it's not successful, at least you only lost 10 yards as opposed to losing the football. <laughs> but, yeah. No, I think I remember reading that the refs literally told Lawrence Taylor, listen, we can't call this every single down, so you're just going to have to deal with it. And <laughs> LT agreed later that he got held every single play. But he didn't really care. He kind of liked the fact that it was super scrappy. So, I mean, again, one, one more reason for me to argue that he's the greatest player to ever play it football. Was, it was clearly not stopping him. Yeah, <laughs> I imagine he probably felt pretty good about guys, like, grappled on his arms as he's just tearing through, like... That's what I mean, like, he... <laughs> he, he could have had one on his back and still <laughs> caught up to whatever running back was trying to get the edge. <laughs> you know, I feel like this is probably along the lines of, like, when a younger sibling has friends over playing, like, Mario Kart, and then you step in and you're like, oh, I'll race you guys, and then you just dust all of them, and you feel really good because... These kids are all competitive amongst each other, and then you come in and just mop the floor with them. See, you need to give a little context to that story, though, because any of our listeners who are below the age of 20 have never had that experience. That is true. The, I guess. the younger generation has been beating older siblings at video games for some time now, and, and I don't like it. Not yeah, one that's bit. tough. Man. Oh, shoot, man, times are changing. Yeah, but it, it, at least it, in a pickup game, they can still, you know, right. throw their weight around a little bit. You get one kid grabbing around your ankles as you drag them across the, <laughs> the freshly mowed grass. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Just got back from the Bengals game. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Oh, man. Uh, but, yeah, so, so he agreed that he got held every play. But anyway, the two teams in the fourth quarter traded field goals, and in the dying moments of the game, LT lined up on offense as a tight end, but the pass to him for the win was tipped and just out of his reach. Mm. I, I'm kind of shocked they didn't have him on offense the entire game as well. Yeah, like running back too. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he could just kind of plow his way through guys. Literally just hold the ball in your hand and do your swim move as if you're pursuing a quarterback that's just permanently ahead of you. <laughs> oh man. So the the Giants won, yeah? Um no. The what? game went to overtime. No. And with seconds to go before a tie, Bills kicker Todd Schlopey lines up for a twenty seven yarder. LT was apparently yelling at the kicker to try and shake him. It didn't work. Schlopey hit the game winner and after the game he mentioned that LT and I quote, the things Lawrence Taylor was yelling at me about my mother. I can't repeat. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, anyway, the final score was 6-3 to three in overtime. I can't believe they didn't win. Like, How do you have LT on your side in a scab game and not win? I, I almost... Bel Belichick is just the, an evil genius. Well, no. Belichick's team lost. He was on the Giants. Oh, he was... You're right. I don't under... You know, now now I'm even more confused. Yeah, I mean, I guess the sum of the Bills were just better than the the Giants plus LT. I don't know. Like, they must have been significantly better because, oh man. I guess, uh, I guess the only way to find out is if we find that film. And break it down. Put, let, we're going to do a film analysis of... The worst game ever. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. But, but yeah, uh, I'd like to acknowledge that there's tons of other stuff about this game worth talking about, but I don't think I can do it as well as this Sports Illustrated article I found, which is called, and I quote, The worst game in NFL history was the best game Lawrence Taylor ever played. End quote. It's well written, and I just want to give it that recognition. It's well worth the read. But, I mean... I think your last thoughts were just expressed there that I don't know how on earth the Giants lost this game with LT. Right. But regardless of that fact, I mean, still fun stuff. Pretty right. amazing. Pretty amazing. But the other game we're talking about is a great one that also has to do with the NFC East. 
It was the Cowboys and the Redskins on Monday Night Football, the last game of the strike. Okay. Washington came into the game 2-0 in scab play, but now play their rivals, the Dallas Cowboys, a replacement team that had garnered an enthusiastic fan base in Dallas and a Hall of Fame head coach in Tom Landry who actually enjoyed coaching these new guys. He found it as a fun challenge, so a lot like Bill Belichick. Yeah. Now, that would have been as challenging on its own for Washington, but just like the previous game we talked about, there were some picket fence crossings. The Cowboys got 8-10 to 10 players back, including their starting quarterback Danny White, and two Hall of Famers in Randy White and Tony Dorsett. Okay. So now this Redskins team is in trouble. Right. If you're listening to this on any of our podcasting platforms, be sure to check out Anchor and SoundCloud for other great U92 podcasts. If you're listening on the air, this is U92 The Moose. Hear us live from anywhere in the world at u92themoose.com. But yeah, so... So did they, uh, they, they take a trip up to um, Minnesota, Wisconsin, maybe, maybe uh, <laughs> get out to Colorado? That seems to be where you get all, all, all your hot shots. <laughs> right, your, your, your top recruits. So, I mean, you're on the right track here when it comes to preparing for this game. Redskins GM Bobby Bethard was willing to get recruits from anywhere, including their local prison. Oh, yes. This got spicy. In need for a quarterback, the GM went to prison and negotiated a leave for former Tennessee volunteer Tony Robinson, who was in on cocaine charges. Oh, okay. He didn't kill nobody. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, this guy, I mean, this guy got involved with drugs, which, you know, you can't condone, but there are a lot of worse things people are in prison for, so the Redskins GM is, is uh... Cutting his losses here and just... <laughs> Pragmatism. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so the game begins. The Redskins lose their starting quarterback to injury, and Robinson is given the reins of the offense in the second quarter. A reminder, he has to play against a Hall of Fame lineman in Randy White. But Robinson doesn't flinch. His team has a 3-0 lead after the first half. In the third quarter, they drive down and score a rushing touchdown. Then finally, the NFL quarterback... Drives down and throws a 38-yard touchdown. The score is 10-7 Redskins. Okay. Then in the fourth quarter, Robinson leads his team down the field for another field goal. Them boys could not respond. 13-7 is your final score. The Redskins win and one is considered one of the greatest upsets in NFL history. From what I've watched, historians seem to think that the few players on the Cowboys who were pro did not have chemistry with their team and that canceled out their talents. Meanwhile, the Redskins were a well-oiled machine that made things work, and I personally, I'm not sure how much I'm sold on that argument, since the game's hero wasn't even on the roster for the whole week before. Mm -hmm. But, once again, just like that Bills-Giants game, it's pretty confounding that the Scabs team won, despite these pro players being on the other team. Well, this time it makes more sense. First of all, it's not LT. And yeah. second of all, the quarterback gave all his linemen cocaine. <laughs> he just... It's, it's Michael Jordan's secret stuff. <laughs> secret stuff. <laughs> oh, my goodness. That's... Oh, man. That's... But... That I mean, is so wild. It was wild the thing. 80s. Why, why <laughs> do you think Landry was having so much fun? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. He was like, all right, well, I gotta enjoy this somehow. <laughs> I'm getting paid to do this, so I might as well make it worth it. <laughs> I think I think what you're missing is that was just the status quo, and it just made the change in uh, <laughs> dynamics more palatable. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. But anyway, Tony Robinson was lauded as the hero of the game. He finished with 11 for 18 for 152 yards and two interceptions. But that's a pretty great performance for a guy who... I mean, for a scab in general, but also for a guy who literally was just in prison. So, I mean, he had to be staying in shape, I guess. Yeah, and I mean, all the people keep louding over the fact that, like, this guy was really cool and calm under pressure, and he, like, he wowed people during that game. Sure, the stat sheet doesn't blow up in front of you, but he still played a, He still played his game, and he got his team a win, which is pretty pretty awesome. Last time someone your size was barreling down on me, 
Neither of us had helmets. So he's feeling pretty safe. <laughs> he's like, man, y'all think this is violent. Y'all think this is scary. The funniest part is that the guy went back to prison after this was all over. Well, of course. Well, yeah, I mean, it makes sense, but it's still really funny to think about. That right, you go back to you go back to your job at a chemical engineering plant. You go back to prison. It's just it's just the life of a scab. It's the circle of life going on here. It's wow. But luckily, I believe he owns a paint shop nowadays. So I mean, good for him. But it is crazy to think that a guy was in jail, played on Monday Night Football, and then went back to jail. So he just kind of got this escape gig. And then it <laughs> was back. Can you imagine him just going back to prison being like, bro, like, you have no idea what I just did. Well, didn't they make a movie about it? They did. And Longest that is, Yard, right? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, no, they made a movie about it called The Replacement, starring Keanu Reeves as, I guess in this case, Tony Robinson. So Okay. It, yeah. The movie that, is you know... kind of based <laughs> off of that game. <laughs> Tony Robinson looking a bit like Adam Sandler makes a lot more sense if he was played by Keanu Reeves. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. But, yeah, so the Redskins went on to win the Super Bowl that year, which meant that their scabs played a significant role in that. They went 3-0, and which helped them win the division and get some home playoff games. So some of you may be wondering, they played such a big part in getting the Redskins to the Super Bowl, did they get any Super Bowl rings? Were they on the team at the time of uh, the Super Bowl? No. And yeah. and the no. other answer is no. no. A big fat no. <laughs> yeah. They didn't get anything. Now, later head coach Joe Gibbs lauded them for their efforts and how significant their part was. But when he was asked why they didn't have Super Bowl rings, he said this, and I quote, That one would be hard for me to answer. I don't know that I have a good answer for that. I would say, you know, they certainly deserve a lot of credit. But a Super Bowl ring? It would be kind of hard for me to answer. I think that was a very small portion of Redskin history, which I, I, I buzzed that one several times. I'm hitting a red button like, bah, bah, bah. you can't just say that they were great and then just go, nah, they're only, they're a sliver of Redskin history. I mean, it, it's the same thing as like, you know, you go halfway through the season with someone like you like your kicker. Mm -hmm. You go halfway through the season with a kicker, he misses too many field goals, you cut him. You sign a new guy, mm -hmm. go to the Super Bowl. Does that other kicker deserve a ring? No. No. But, I mean, I think the context there is a little slightly different, though, because those guys won them games, and they, they contributed to the team's win, where that kicker, sure, yeah. he probably kicked some extra points, got himself cut for his poor performance. Well, I, I think uh, the, the symbolism of the ring would not be what I'd get hung up on. The yeah, fact that the coach yeah. acknowledged that we played a part. I mean, yeah, I, I mean, I'm fine with them not getting rings. I would have been more happy if his answer was just, "Look, we only get 53 rings for the teams on the roster. They exactly. are on the roster." It's a perfectly good explanation. Yeah, and 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 he talks about, "I don't have a good answer." Well, you didn't think hard enough. Then, yeah, there is a really good answer for this. Yeah, and I mean, I imagine all those players on that team think back to that year and are like, "You know what? I don't need a ring." I know I took, I helped the Redskins get to the Super Bowl. Yeah, I mean, just gather around the water cooler. Oh, hold on, tune in to this uh, broadcast. Joe Gibbs praising players. Yeah, that, that was, was me. me. Yeah, I did, <laughs> I did that, yeah. So yeah, so that's kind of the end of what I've gotten written down. What are some reflections from this or some takeaways that you've got from these random stories from this time? Well, I mean, we've touched on it all, of course, going through. Just the idea that this was uh, a side gig <laughs> really <laughs> cracks me up. You know, like, taking vacation to go play in the NFL is is just wonderful. Um, and uh, the fact that we also had the plot to Longest Yard in here all tangled <laughs> into this. This makes it even better. Um, I guess uh, I, I would really want to know the story about any players that were kept on. Because you said that there were there was that first quarterback um, from um, Montana, right? Um, Minnesota? Mm, well, that played for Ditka and then yeah. got hurt. 
Yeah. Yeah. What? Uh. Like, was he the only guy who any of the teams even considered keeping on? I think there were some players that. I think there were a couple that did get kept on. Um, I found some of them. I decided to go with this one in this case just because I it was a little bit more interesting in the length of his story and the fact that he beat Sean Payton now. But right. I think there's totally a good story there for those players that did make it. I just only saw them briefly mentioned from what I was reading. But it would be right. worth diving into. I agree. Yeah, yeah. And... Um... Go find that tape. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, <laughs> again, I read through a ton of stuff, and there is a lot of content, including what the striking players were doing. That was really interesting during that time. Yeah. Well, so. uh, the the fact that they stuck uh, their nose up at the picking the the picket fence, the the striking players, yeah, and still played the games is just. I mean, it, it, when you've got more recent examples of stuff like that like the nhl did their holdout and i you know nobody got on the ice it it was clearly a a more unified thing and and the fact that the owners were able to get away with it and you know paint it in this is just a a good thing for the the NFL. A good thing for the uh, the the blue collar workers of the <laughs> rhinestone. Yeah, yeah. Uh, cow- like you know, it's it's very very good PR work, and and uh, as usual, they they probably didn't suffer a whole lot from it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. They not too much. I mean, free agency didn't even come around after the season. It took a couple other years before really the free agency we know today really got implemented. Mm-hmm. But my big takeaway from this was when I was reading this last little bit that the head coach of this squad for the Washington Redskins was Joe Gibbs, which is also the head coach of the Redskins in 2004. And I play Madden 05 now to kill the time, and I replaced the Washington Redskins with the Penguins, which meant that Joe Gibbs was the head coach of my team and is still the head coach of now the Mexico City Penguins. So he's just a master of coaching bad players and making them good. Because I made the I made the so the Morgantown Penguins went four and twelve the first season in my franchise and then won the Super Bowl in the next year. So Joe Gibbs is just a wizard at a coaching meteoric, guys. A meteoric rise. <laughs> so with Gibbs at the helm. Yeah, Joe Gibbs is just a speaker to mediocre players can rise them to relevancy. But yeah, so that's my takeaway. Um, it's not really substantial in this regard, but I, the main thing is that there are so many interesting stories that go on with the strike, and they warrant other episodes to talk about them. So we may come back to this topic if, you know, we find ourselves a little dry in the NFL and just need something to go back to and unpack. It was a very strange time, and that is exactly the kind of stuff we want to be talking about. So yeah. But yeah, with that in mind, uh, once again, be sure to be checking out our other podcasts on SoundCloud and Anchor, as I've been mentioning throughout this podcast. And tune in to U92 The Moose. If you're in Morgantown, you can check us out on 91.7 FM. Or if you're away from Morgantown or just want to listen to us online, you can listen on U92TheMoose.com. We are giving you as much content as we can from our homes. And trust me, I know a lot of guys, especially in the sports staff, because I know them more personally, are all working really hard to get you some stuff every single week. So with that in mind, I bid you farewell uh, from here at the James Schoenster household. Uh, Until next week. Bye.